0: You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania.
1: Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's
2: Grace. (laughs)
1: Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Amanda. Today, we are going to be talking about David Hurley. And um, the case is also known as the PA Route 22 killer. So David Hurley was a 34-year-old husband and father of four. He worked in maintenance at Kane Hospital in Pittsburgh until he became disabled after complications from a hernia surgery. He was great with kids and even volunteered as an assistant coach for the Eastmont Baseball Association in 1992. So David said goodbye to his wife at 1.30 in the morning on June 13, 1992. He had agreed to help his brother with a Boy Scout outing that weekend, and they were to be leaving at 5 a.m. He stopped at the Penn Center Dunkin' Donuts in Wilkins Township.
2: That's where Beth Lynn Barr was from, so apparently that's a scary place.
1: <laughs> on his way to meet his brother, thinking that the kids would love to see donuts that early in the morning. He left Dunkin' Donuts between 3 and 3.15, and as he pulled onto the street, bam, a vehicle sideswiped him Near the intersection of Hawthorne Drive on PA Route 22 westbound, and the intersection is just beyond the Wilkins Township Shop and Save. He stopped and got out of his green van to exchange information when the driver of the other vehicle walked right up to him and punched him. Shocked at what exactly was happening, he took a moment to collect himself, but in that moment it was interrupted by the sound of a gunshot. Now, really not sure what was going on, David turned to head back to his van to escape the bullets flying past him, but he wasn't quite fast enough. David was shot three times once in the shoulder, once in the lower chest, and one time in the back while he was getting back into his van.
0: Good gravy, that escalated quickly.
1: Exactly. David was wounded, but he was able to drive two miles home, walked in his front door, and yelled for his wife's help. Obviously, she wasn't expecting him home but she could tell there was panic in his voice, so she ran downstairs to find her injured husband. Many people have commented that it was really odd that he drove home instead of to a payphone or directly to a hospital. I did Google map it from that intersection to see how close a hospital was, and it was about 4.4 miles or like 10 to 13 minutes worth of travel time. So
0: is it possible there that just kind of shock set in and took over? Um, I mean, sometimes if you're in full shock, your body will just go into autopilot since it is an area that he traveled often. Maybe his body's autopilot just kind of kicked in and muscle memory took over and made, you know, the rights and the lefts and and got him home just by muscle memory.
1: I think that's definitely plausible. I mean, Kind of like the fight or flight response, he fled the scene because he obviously didn't stay to fight back with a gunfight, Um, and he went to a safe place, which in this case would have been his house.
3: So I'm interested to know if the guy that hit him with a car and who had punched him in the face is the same guy that shot him, because it doesn't specifically say that. So I was just wondering for clarification.
1: I'm going to say with a safe assumption that it is. I didn't find anything that contradicts it. Um, and given the fact that he punched him, I would, I'm assuming, I'm assuming. Okay. Um, so according to an article in wordpress.com, uh, Pam, David's wife, saw no visible signs of wounds until he actually pulled up his shirt.
3: But then I feel if he got shot three times, wouldn't he be bleeding fairly profusely?
1: So... I read up on this, and by no means am I a firearms expert, so please do not come at me. But according to Wikipedia, because, I mean, Wikipedia knows everything, um, There, the bullet that actually hit him was a, a 380 ACP, and some experts say that it was barely adequate to cause injury, and others say that it's barely inadequate, meaning that this type of gun is light, it's compact, it has a short range, and has less stopping power than modern pistols. The bullet itself has a diameter of only like 0.355 inches and has an expansion diameter of 0.36 to 0.64 inches, meaning that the bullet, like when the bullet expands on impact, which is literally like not even half of an inch. So it's a pretty small hole. I'm thinking it's more, you have more internal damage, but I'm not a gun expert.
0: It's also possible to, um, and definitely not a gun expert here either, um, but it's possible that if it was small enough and kind of weak enough that it would like penetrate the skin and get into it, but stay lodged there. If something is lodged against a blood vessel, a vein, whatever, it'll keep it from bleeding out until you remove it. So if it happened... I don't know what the chances are of all three of them, you know, just kind of being in just that right spot that it would kind of stop the blood flow until they were removed. Um, But I know that that's something that can happen. Again, I'm not sure how that fits into this gun and the bullets themselves, because I don't know that much about guns.
1: No, it definitely makes sense because, you know, we're taught as EMTs, you know, if there's any kind of penetrating trauma and not to remove it. So like a knife or something like that, like you take it with you, you wouldn't remove it. Um, So immediately, Pam called 911 and handed her husband a dishcloth to apply pressure. She reported to Unsolved Mysteries, quote, I was stunned and thoroughly shocked. I just couldn't comprehend that he had been shot. It was just unbelievable. She goes on to say, quote, he was calm for a person that had just been shot at that particular time. I was more concerned with getting information that could be put on the air for the other units that were still out on the road.
0: I think that's another big thing with shock, too. And I shouldn't even say I think because it's proven Uh, your adrenaline races so much that you won't even feel the pain. I know there was an incident in pa over and i forget where in the state over winter where the neighbors were fighting over snow plowing or shoveling or whatever and the people that were shot eventually did pass but they like didn't even register the pain right away you can tell if you've seen the video which i think has been taken down and you don't want to see it um But you can see, like, they were shot multiple times and kept moving just because of the adrenaline. It doesn't even really, I hate to use the word trigger, but it doesn't trigger that sensation of the pain until you start to slow back down.
1: I mean, I think we saw in recent news, we had that, that, I think she was a prison guard that was shot in the face and then went and helped one of her... Co-workers that was shot. Mm -hmm. Um, so definitely see it there. And I know, um, being an EMT that I had a patient, a patient, I had a patient once that was in a car accident and his foot was lodged and it actually, um, was still in his boot in the car while we were working on him in the back of the ambulance. And he literally had no idea. Now, I don't know if it was 100% adrenaline or his liquid courage, um, but he had no idea. And side note, Thanks. the foot is reattached and he's able to walk.
3: Oh, wow. What? Yeah. That's crazy.
1: It is.
0: Oh, my gosh.
3: So I'm kind of confused why she wouldn't put pressure, especially if he was shot in the shoulder. I was just thinking, could he even efficiently apply pressure?
1: Um, I'm not sure. I think that his wife was more concerned of getting help there and had him hold pressure. Um, I would think, like, I don't know exactly where he was shot. I would think he would be able to. I mean, he's able to sit there and talk and drive. So I don't think it really sunk in like we were talking about the adrenaline. Um, So paramedics and police arrived around 3.30 that morning and David was sitting at the table giving a description of the suspect and details that led to the shooting. David said that a young black man driving a 1989 or 1990 champagne gold-colored Honda Prelude.
0: So, quick interjection here, and I'm pretty sure that Grace will agree with me based on the conversation that we had related to Bethlyn Barr. I truly hope I never have to tell anybody what specific vehicle was involved in something, especially down to like a year. I mean, I can tell you I was in an accident when I was in high school. I can barely remember which vehicle I was driving because, you know, I was the young one in the family. So I kind of got whatever car was free in the driveway. I didn't have my own car. So I don't even remember what car I was in or what the car was like that hit me. And I feel like now if it's something more traumatic, I would probably be able to remember it or at least say, you know, it was a Chevy or a Ford, but I'm really hoping that I never have to be able to say, oh, it was an 89 or 90 because I would have no clue.
1: I truly think it just depends on the situation and the person. Um, My husband and I actually had a conversation not long ago about this, specifically what people are wearing when they pass away. So kind of morbid, but both of us are EMTs and we've worked together a lot on the ambulance and frequently discuss like some of these calls, more of the tragic calls um, in private between us because like mental health is super important in that line of work. Um, And in my husband's case, he can remember what a person's wearing down to like the amazing detail, like the color of socks they had on. If it had like the blue colored band at the top or any of that, and not for every call, but like more of the memorable ones, like the losses or like the really bad injuries or the funny ones. Um, And then you have me on the other hand that I remember certain calls and smells because like, if you know, you know, but only a handful of calls do I actually remember any detail like clothing. I can remember like why I'm there and what they looked like. But if you ask me if they had a yellow shirt or cut their toenails that day, I couldn't tell you.
0: That makes sense.
1: So, by all accounts, David wasn't acting as if he was severely injured. That is, until he was placed on the litter, or as you guys might know it as a stretcher or gurney. He started to have difficulties breathing, so he was transported to, by life flight, to Presbyterian University Hospital in Pittsburgh. So obviously he was taken to a level one trauma center due to his injuries and kind of a side note on that because I'm sure we'll see it in the future. um, A level one trauma center is, I'm talking about the kind of resources available defined by national standards for trauma care and then the hospital's ranking. So a level one trauma center is capable of providing a total care for every aspect of an injury. They can reduce mortality by 25% compared to a non-trauma center. And a lot of the big, like, well-known ones in our area would be Penn State, Milton S. Hershey, Geisinger, Lehigh Valley Health Network, which has an amazing burn center. Um, this hospital that he was that David was taken to was less than 10 minutes from his house, but about 25 minutes worth of drive time. So by air, it would cut it down to about five or six minutes. Um, and of course, there's guidelines on when you fly a patient and when you don't, on where I worked as an EMT for the past 16 years. It was about 45-50 minutes to a level 1 trauma center, so it often led to me flying patients more than not if they were severely injured. So he was rushed into surgery at 4.30 in the morning where they found that he had a lacerated liver causing internal bleeding from the 3.80 automatic round. He was expected to be in surgery for 4-5 to hours. After only 2 hours in surgery, Pam said, I remember we looked at the clock and it was 6.30 a.m. I looked at my brother and said, this is great. They're already done. It must have been a lot better than they expected. The doctor said surgery was going well until he went into cardiac arrest. David was pronounced dead at 630 that morning. He was laid to rest at Churchill Cemetery in Wilkins Township. The Eastmont Baseball Association postponed all games scheduled that day out of the respect for David.
2: So it blows my mind that his injuries were this severe. And I know we were talking about adrenaline, but, um, you know, that kind of keeps you from feeling pain, but they were so bad that he passed away hours later, but he was still able to drive home relatively calmly and explain the situation to officers and make it to the hospital before he succumbed to
0: his injuries, which I don't know. That's crazy to me. Is part of that, Amanda, you might know more than the rest of us, is is part of that because he passed after a cardiac event versus from, you know, bleeding out from the bullets or anything like that?
1: Um, I don't know. They didn't go into detail, so I couldn't tell you, like, you know, was it because he, um, like, threw a blood clot while they were trying to fix him or, like, it doesn't really say or it was just too much stress on his heart. It just says that he went into cardiac arrest. Okay. So I'm not 100% sure. Um, the Allegheny County Police Homicide Division and Wilkins Township Police searched everywhere for a vehicle that was involved, assuming it would be easy to spot a gold Honda Prelude with green paint transfer from David's van. However, they weren't able to find any leads. The newspapers dubbed the driver of the Honda Prelude the PA Route 22 killer.
3: So I have a question. Um, I know it. He was hit, but how severe was the accident to leave transfer paint? I mean, was it just like kind of like a fender bender or was it like their cars are totaled? And I mean, they couldn't be totaled because he drove home. So was it like just like a fender bump? I I just was wondering if you had any more information about that.
1: Um, I, I would say hard enough that like paint hit other paint and caused the transfer. I don't think it has to be super hard for that to happen. Um, it could just be like, they brushed against each other. I don't, it wasn't, I mean, obviously it wasn't that bad that he was able to drive it home.
3: So then wouldn't it be more likely that it was easier to paint over or cover it?
1: Probably. And it, maybe it was still light enough that he could have like buffed it out and you wouldn't have seen it or he wasn't from the area and, and kept going. I mean, 22 comes into central Pennsylvania. So yeah. That yeah. year, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette wrote a huge three-page article highlighting how 1992 was a violent, deadly year, with 83 homicides reported. The county coroner attributed the overall homicide rise to the increased use of firearms as guns were used in 49 of the 83 killings. The assistant police chief at the time told them, quote, Some homicides are gang-related, some are drive-bys and there are a lot of narcotics in the killings. So one of the theories that I saw online says that David was into drugs since he had such a strange chain of events, but his best friend posts that he 100% denies that there are drugs involved in David's case at all. David's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack in the mid-1990s. After Pam's brother contacted the show to see if they could help get justice for David and his family. And if you'd like to see it once in a while, it's still available on the Lifetime channel. On their website, people have posted several comments about the possibility of drugs being involved and other theories, all pointing to the events being, quote, sketchy. So this is where things kind of get interesting. David's ex wife actually posted on the website and said, quote, yeah, I'm a little suspicious as well. I was married to David in 1979 and had a daughter with him. He wasn't the saint he was made out to be. One person pressured to like get more information and asked if he was into drugs or he was a cheater or abusive, what would make her say something like that, but she actually never responded and she wasn't, I wasn't able to find any information regarding his first marriage, but I did find a few other theories. So just
2: to clarify, when he went home after being shot, that was his second wife. Correct.
1: Yep. Second wife. So one of the other theories was that David was seeing another woman and he was shot by the woman's husband. This theory stems by the idea that he left his house at one thirty in the morning. So my question
3: is, how do we know the time is one thirty exactly? Was it planned? And he told his wife, hey, I'm leaving at 1.30. Or did he maybe Russell's wife wake, give her a kiss? She looked over at the time, just because I know my partner had wake me up to tell me something. And if it's not like a super long conversation, just a short like, "Hey, I might like wake up and mumble something, but I have no recollection of it in the morning." So I'm just wondering.
1: I think it was based off of his wife's account and maybe even his um, when he since he did talk to the police, but. Oh. It doesn't really say exactly like who, which one of them said it. Okay. So we know so that he got up at one thirty in the morning, and he went shooting, to Dunkin' donuts. donuts. However, Duncan it was reported um, that Dunkin' um, donuts, so donuts. You didn't or anyone that early you know in the morning, know something, and about that there's this huge your urge time to lapse to call between 1.30 and when Police are called at 3.30. This definitely did hit me as strange, though, when
0: you kind of detailed the timeline earlier. Do we know how far his house is from the accident location? That it would take up that time. Different,
1: so it is a literally 2.2 miles away okay well that's
0: not two hours <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: no and I my other thought was maybe like he got up and he kissed his wife goodbye at 1 30 but then he went downstairs and like made coffee or like did something downstairs I mean my husband will kiss me and then like go take his morning time in the bathroom or one of those like you know I'm sure there's a possibility he was doing something else. I don't know. Two hours? I mean, men like to spend time in there, but maybe he had a very large
2: dinner the night before. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my husband's. Gonna I was going to say,
0: <laughs> sometimes my husband would like to spend a lot of time too, but ninety-five percent of that time, he's just scrolling through TikTok. I was so. going to say, was he looking at memes?
2: <laughs> Did he have his phone with him?
0: Uh, no, that's... Your husband would be the one staring at memes.
1: <laughs> but, I mean, we're talking, like, 1992. Right, so right. He, unless he had his bag phone and he was, like, typing in, like... <laughs> Making it say boob like you did on a calculator. I don't know what you would be doing. <laughs> he's laughing to himself while he's sitting in the bathroom. Just like Wait, that's also my husband. To a <laughs> exactly. Too real. So there was another theory. Um, and
0: oh
1: my gosh. <laughs> and this posting mentioned that they think that it was an inside job. And that Pam, his wife, had hired someone to shoot him because she was the one having an affair. I didn't find any evidence to support this theory, but I did find some other information that was kind of interesting, and um, it was the fact that, so David was killed June of 1992. Pam had a daughter in May of 1994, meaning she was pregnant a mere 14 months after her husband's death, which was about a 10-year-long marriage. So I don't want to try to imagine what it would be like if my husband passed away suddenly i mean i'm always on edge with him being a firefighter um at first i thought there's absolutely no way that someone else i would be with someone else in that little of time but thinking about it you know my great aunt her husband passed away after 30 years and she never dated again but then on the other hand one of my close friends passed away and her husband remarried after five years So I think it's kind of hard to say like what grief does to a person and like when one person is ready to move forward.
2: So after hearing so many stories and cases where the spouse passes away, I'm less and less surprised when the other moves on quickly. And I mean, I certainly can't imagine it now, but losing a spouse is one of the most traumatic things you can go through and you're probably seeking support and security, so if you think about it, it kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think we have to consider the companionship side of it all. That she just wanted someone to be with. So Pam's daughter tragically passed away at the age of 21 in February of 2016. I wasn't able to find a cause anywhere, but her obituary does not name who her father is, but it does, however, name the three Mm. brothers and one sister, which were all David's biological children. In 1995, police determined the gun involved in another case matched the gun that that murdered David. However, the current owner didn't own the gun at the time of the murder, and the case went cold. Was the other case a murder as well? I'm not sure because PD has been pretty tight-lipped about pretty much everything involving leads in this case, which seems to be typical. Um,
0: I feel like you'd have to have a history of, I mean, who this person bought that gun from or, like, there's got to be some sort of paper trail. Wouldn't there be?
1: There, I would think, I mean, unless it's a gun off the street, and I would assume, too, That's that true. it has to be something involved in, like, a robbery or some kind of shooting because, I mean, they were able to match a bullet. (laughs) Right. So going back to the Unsolved Mysteries website, a psychic reported online that she watched the episode and determined by, quote, immediately feeling that the man that shot David was a felon and that he was afraid to go back to jail. So she believes that they should continue to follow the lead of the vehicle, and specifically search for felons that owned a gold Honda Prelude. Which, I mean, I can kind of get behind that. That makes sense that he, you know, shot him because he didn't want to go back to jail. I mean, those have to be some hefty charges you're running from to, like, murder someone to not go back. So, a few years later, um, a warrant was issued by the United States Drug Enforcement Administration, for a possible suspect. But again, it went nowhere. Okay, so
2: personally, I'm thinking that it had to be someone that David knew because the guy had a gun, so why did he walk up and punch him first? It just sounds like he was pretty pissed. Um, And David could have been lying about the description of either the man or the car to cover something up, like drugs or an affair. And also, if it, he was just pulling out of the Duncan parking lot and there was staff inside, which is questionable given the time. How did no one else see anything like it? It all sounds so fishy.
3: So in college, I went to Philadelphia and we didn't I didn't live on campus. I lived with uh, five other girls and we were just off of campus and we were not living in the best of areas because we were just so smart. But one of my roommates was walking to school. It was in the morning and she had literally just left and not even like five minutes later, she came in like with this huge bloody nose. She was walking. She wasn't she wasn't not paying attention, but nothing seemed odd. Someone was walking on the same side of the uh, sidewalk as her wasn't really taking notice. And at the last minute, he popped her in the face and just kept on going. And she ran what? back into the house. Yeah. He didn't try to steal anything. He just punched her in the face. Didn't say anything and just kept walking. She didn't recognize him. Like she had like looked up at him and didn't think anything of it. Cause like he wasn't looking at her. He looked non-threatening. And it was in the morning during the day, he popped her right in the face and she came back and she couldn't even give a good description because she wasn't even worried about it. And I guess didn't notice, but she did know that she didn't know him. So it was just, I always laugh about it, but it's terrible to
2: laugh, but I can't, I just can't imagine walking down the street and getting punched punched in the face.
3: Yeah. And the cops, the first thing. Well, the cops were like, well, did he try to mug you? And She's like, no, I had a backpack. I had a purse. He didn't grab anything. He just hit her in the face and kept walking.
0: Bro needs some anger management therapy. <laughs> That's not the way to handle your emotions. And yeah. I don't say that as a joke. I, I sincerely believe in therapy. That wasn't a, a dig at therapy. But seriously, if you're walking around just punching people in the face, it, it might be time to uh, find Sidewalk some different rage. ways to deal with that. Do you think he <laughs> yeah, was on drugs?
3: I mean, It's a huge possibility. I mean, it was like a really bad part of Philly. So nothing really surprised me there.
1: So the thing that really sticks out to me is this huge timeline, like two hours and you're only two miles away from your house. What are you, unless we're in the bathroom for two hours, what exactly is he doing? True. Yeah,
0: there's definitely something sketchy within that, that timeline. I definitely don't love it at all
2: i'm thinking drugs i don't know i'm le- i'm just like leaning more toward something with drugs
3: i wonder if they tested him during the autopsy yeah
1: and i don't know like i mean he was in surgery did they release some blood work out and stuff it was pretty oh, obvious he died from a gunshot
3: that's oh, probably true. true yeah
1: so we don't know hmm.
0: i, I don't wonder know. if they still and and I know, Amanda, you've, I think you said you've witnessed some autopsies. Um, do they yeah. do, and this is where we need, like, Elena Urquhart, um do they always do an autopsy every time somebody dies? Or, like, if, you know, he died during surgery, so it, you know, they know what it was, would they not do anything and just say, you know, died on the table and... Here we are, or would they still do something that they might draw blood for?
1: Um, I mean, I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I know they don't do autopsies for everybody. Like, if it was a witnessed and like the person's elderly or they had cancer or things like that, a lot of times like the coroner will come out and say, "Yep," yeah, and go ahead and call the the funeral home. If it wasn't witnessed or it's suspicious at all it will get taken down for for an autopsy as far as like sense. the hospital end of it so i think the kind of, into it kind of goes the same a way. trauma bay they typically do x rays and they pull out this like massive syringe and they pull a ton of blood at one shot so that they can fill all the little vials so it's not like you sitting there with like the little butterfly and filling each vial they just take like a massive like syringe full so that they can do it on the side and like get out of the way because you need other things done. So I would assume that they probably did take blood.
3: So in my experience, I, um, I've had a couple people pass away and some of them were like, I guess they're not like cancer patients. You know, it's not like coming like the, like not all cancer patients are going to die, but you know, some that are terminal, and from my mom and my grandfather, I know that we didn't request to have, you know, an autopsy done, but I guess to cover themselves, they, the hospital, they did it anyway. Like, even though we were like, you don't have to, like, not that we don't care, but like we knew, like for my mom, she had MS and she had some other problems, but we were like, you know, we know we're not going to see or anything like that, but they do it to cover themselves. At least that was explained for us, especially for my mom, for my grandfather was a little bit different, but um, yeah, they, they did it, even though we told them we didn't want it.
0: I wonder if that varies hospital to hospital too, that that was something that, you know, the hospital that, you know, your mom or your grandfather was within um, the care of, Maybe they, you know, kind of did it always, but wherever, um, you know, other hospitals might not. But I also, I mean, we're this comes up because we're asking about tox screen, which they would be able to do from assuming that in the trauma bay, they did take all that blood, like Amanda had said. So they would have been able to run it from that anyway.
1: I know, like as far as drugs in the county that I observed the autopsies in, um, if it's, if they're laying there and they have a needle in their arm and they're known drug users and stuff, um, they don't do autopsies um, Hmm. because it's kind of unfortunately a waste right now with the epidemic of like the opioid epidemic. Now that's just in this County, but in the neighboring County, they do it for every single one, and so they're overrun with them, um, and so they often send them over to be done. Hmm.
0: I wonder if county population has something to do with it, too, because, you know, I think of just the area that I grew up in, you know, growing up in Duncannon and Perry County. You know, there's not too many people in the county, but, you know... Do you have a street light yet? <laughs> yes, there are uh two or three red lights in perry county now um there's definitely two there's definitely one in marysville one in duncannon um but you know you go 20 minutes down the road you're in dauphin county and harris Well, you go across the river and you're in dauphin county and you know dauphin county is huge and there's i mean i don't know the exact population but i would say it's at least triple what's in perry county if not more so that might play into you know county coroners doing the autopsies as well just truly how much space that's available to do them especially when you basically know the cause
1: yeah so police believe that someone may have witnessed the shooting possibly somebody in dunkin donuts um, so, if you or anyone you know knows something about it, you're urged to call the Allegheny County Homicide Detectives at 412 473 1300. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember to never reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any information. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Amanda. All our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance by Darren Makins. Please join us next week for another case to sleuth out.